to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Uh, very good morning to you. Um, you've re- recently joined us, or you're new uh, to our church uh, this week. You know, we're actually in uh, week three of a vision series. Uh, typically in the church, you know, we teach through scriptures, we have a bunch of sermon series, but um, we're actually taking this month uh, aside to really hear from uh, the Spirit and what He's saying to the church. Uh, you know, we feel that we are on the cusp of a real move of the Spirit in the church, and uh, we've all had this sense, this uh, expectation that's been birthed in our hearts for the work of the Spirit collectively as a leadership. You know, we really felt that the theme for this year is, is to really receive the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives, but also for the sake of our community and the world in which we live in. And so really, you know, this series is us leaning in to the leadings of the Spirit, and us saying yes to all that he wants to do. And so we're on week three of this series. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, we talked about uh, revival. We talked about what it looks like when God's hand comes upon a community, when he comes in power, when he comes in might, when he comes in splendor, how it actually affects our community, how it actually affects the world in which we live in. Revival is not a myth, ladies and gentlemen. It's on the heart of God, and it is possible. It's a, it's a reality that we can experience in our time, in our day, in our age, in our city, in our lives. Amen? Amen. This week, you know, I have something on a similar vein, and I think it's going to be uh, real helpful, even as we lean in together as a church uh, to receive the Holy Spirit. Are you great? Yeah, Are you good? All right. Shall we pray before we begin? Not that you have a choice, I have the mic. Well, Father, we thank you for the great joy and privilege of coming together in a manner like this. Lord, we don't take it lightly. God, we thank you for the promise of Scripture that when two or three are gathered in your name, that you are here. God, we acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge your person. We give you glory and honor. Our hearts are filled with such gratitude that you would come when we call upon your name, you, you hear, you answer, and you are here in our midst. God, we ask even as we open scriptures this morning, Lord, uh, let it not just be an academic exercise or a time where we just read uh, words and gain knowledge and insight, but let this be a time where we meet with you. God, we thank you that scriptures, uh, it's not an archaic piece of literature, but it's living, it's breathing, it's speaking to us even now. So Holy Spirit, we ask, even as we read uh, words from these pages, Lord, that you will breathe life into these very words, a breathe life into our hearts, even as we hear of your word. God, I thank you that lives are not changed by the depth of my research or the eloquence of my preaching, but they are changed by your spirit. So Spirit of God, we invite you to come, to come in power, to come like you did in the days of Acts, to come like you did in the revivals that we've heard over the last couple of weeks. Come in power. Come in might, come in splendor, come like the wind. Blow through this place. We invite you to come in power. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. amen. Um, last December, you know, I uh, was invited to speak somewhere. And, um, you know, a real message that I've been uh, carrying my heart is this whole message of slowing down, of Sabbath, of uh, eliminating hurry, of... Um, no overall slowing down the pace of your life to walk with Jesus. I think many of us have adopted a pace of life that simply does not allow us to abide with God. Uh, and so, you know, a real message that I feel uh, is on my heart for the body of Christ that I think it's so needed in our day and age, you know, of like digital addiction, of unbridled ambition, this message of slowing down your life, of Sabbath, of rest in God. It's uh, so needed. And so I was uh, on my way to a place, you know, I was uh, preparing that message uh, to speak to a bunch of people. And, you know, I, I was uh, leaving my office and I was, um, you know, of course, doing up my notes. And I was just listening to myself preach a message. I've done a message here a couple of times. And so I was just listening to myself preach. And I remember, you know, I was uh, hurrying to the train station because I needed the irony there. I was hurrying to the train station because I needed to get home. I needed to get home. I needed to change. I needed to go out from there. And so, you know, I was on my way uh, to uh, the train station and I was just listening to myself preach and then I was like, man, I heard this great line from 
myself where I said that like, you know, love and hurry are incompatible, you know, uh, love is patient, hurry is not. And you know, I was like, man, this is such a great line. And so I was just replaying it again and again. And I was like, okay, man, this line is the punchline. I must make sure I build it up, you know, and like package it and like, bam, you know, hit them with it. So I was just thinking too, you know, as we just do, did I just ruin this moment for you? That's the way we think. Okay. Anyway, and so um, I was just walking there, you know, and I, I walked by a person selling uh, tissue papers, you know, and you know me, I've spoken about it often, and this is something that I've really adopted as like um, just a practice, you know, whenever I walk a person selling tissue papers, you know, if I don't have money, I'll go to ATM, draw money, and I would, I would give and I would buy tissue papers, uh, and it's just something that I do. So I was just walking by the person, the person was trying to sell it to me, and I was like, man, I'm in the zone here. I'm hurrying. And, like, and I was just listening to myself talking, like, hurry and loving, and I was like, oh, no, thank you. And I walked there, and then I walked to a train station, I realized I forgot something in the office, and so I hurried back. As I hurried back, I walked past the same person again, and the person offered again, I was like, no, thank you. And I walked to the office, and then I was like preparing myself, and then I was re-listening this, this part again, like, hurry and love, incompatible, you need to slow down to love people. And so I was done in office, I grabbed my stuff, and then I rushed back to the train station, and then I walked past the person again, and then I got train station, and it took me something like 15 minutes to walk back and forth, but something like 15 minutes to realize the irony of the moment. I was listening to uh, a pretty okay speaker teach on, on Hari. I was preparing my notes, ready to teach uh, you know, this message to a bunch of people and encouraging them to slow down, to love people, to eliminate hurry in your life. And I was rushing from place to place, from point to point, uh, without even stopping for uh, a person who is in need of love. And so, uh, of course, I, I doubled back and then I, I did uh, whatever I needed to do. Uh, isn't it interesting that uh, we can adopt uh, certain beliefs and uh, ideas and concepts, you can listen to teachings and agree, and uh, for the most part, uh, desire to live it out, uh, but yet you know, be incongruent in our lifestyle, yet be incongruent in certain decisions we make, in certain uh, choices, in certain practices. Um, that is where discipleship comes in. Uh, discipleship is this process to which we, uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about it often. It's where we become like Jesus. You know, it's not just enough to internalize and ingest knowledge, but it has to translate to some kind of practical life change. It has to translate into practice. And this is what our church is about. We are a church centered around discipleship. We don't have the option of choosing whether to be a disciple or not to be a disciple. It isn't a goal or point you attain, but it is who we are. When we said yes to Jesus and his kingdom, we made a decision to be disciples. And disciples follow, disciples lead life, the lives that exemplify and reflect Christ. And uh, it's been, you know, next month it'll be two years since I've uh, taken over the lead job. You know, uh, it's been two years. You know, time passes by, you know. I've aged. Um, see the wrinkles? This is you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but, uh, but, you know, I've been reflecting on, like, uh, this journey so far and how I've done and, uh, and you know, what's, what's got done through uh, the last couple of years. And uh, I want to share you a couple of quotes that uh, I have read really early on that's really framed uh, my approach to church, my approach to ministry, my approach to uh, how we map out and plan things out in church. Um, this is brilliant quote by Neil Cole. Uh, New Cole says this, uh, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. Let us sit in. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching programs, or property are. We don't have property. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. Brother Neil. Uh, of course, you know, you have to have some Dallas at the start. Dallas Willard, he says this, Since making disciples is the main task of the church, every church ought to be able to answer two questions. What is our plan for making disciples of Jesus? And is our plan working? Is our plan working? Um, that's the goal of uh, our church. And, um, and I might be biased to say this, but I believe it should be the goal of every church uh, to train, to raise, to equip disciples of Jesus uh, 
to walk in his ways and to live uh, out the kingdom in our various uh, realms of influence. And that's what I believe uh, the church ought to do. That's what I believe is the primary function of the church. Now, what is our discipleship strategy? You know, as a staff, we sat down and I really uh, distilled down uh, three main trusts of our church uh, pertaining to discipleship and three trusts are teaching, practice, and community. Teaching, practice, and community. Uh, we teach a lot from the front, you know, we go through a lot of series and uh, we make sure that this is translated to materials for you. Uh, but also we believe that discipleship looks like translating teaching into life change, into practice. Uh, it's not enough to just uh, be filled with knowledge, with understanding, but it has to translate into some kind of change. And we believe that discipleship is best lived out in the context of community. You don't grow in patience through osmosis. You grow in patience by being, surround, by being surrounded by people who demand your patience. Stop looking around. You might throw dagger eyes. But that's how we grow in the things of God. That's how we grow in the ways of Jesus, in the context of community, right? And so this is, for the most part, what we are after. You know, we, we teach and we are invested into teaching and we are also committed to practicing, to living it out in the context of community. Now, these three things are great, but everything that I'm saying here, this teaching, practice, and community, all these things are undergirded, sustained, held together by the Holy Spirit. And a diagram that I'll show you uh, right now, it's something that I've adapted from uh, a guy that I really like. His name is John Mark Coma, and he talks about how teaching, practice, and community, these are things that we practically do. These are things that we can commit to, but it is the Holy Spirit that is the one that brings change and transformation. Yeah. We made the case uh, a couple of weeks ago that we cannot self-engineer for ourselves a life of transformation. We cannot self-engineer for ourselves the kingdom of God on the earth. No matter how good, how ingenious, how insightful your plan is, without the Holy Spirit, that plan, that strategy, that initiative is a one-way road to burn out, to failure. We need the Holy Spirit. We honestly need a power that is far beyond ourselves. Amen? 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 Now, like what I'm saying earlier, now renewal and a life of discipleship, revival, all these things we're talking about is a partnership with God. What I mean by that is that, is that we have a part to play and God has a part to play. And don't think about it as 50-50% kind of equity and kind of commitment. We do a small part and it's the spirit that does the heavy lifting. Our small part, when we commit to teaching, practice, community, it is our yes to the work of the spirit. It's our yes to the intentions of God. Are you all with me? Yes. We need the spirit. As this uh, old saying goes, without him we can't, but without us he won't. Now, I'm going to open up with a pretty familiar passage of scripture uh, this morning. And, and I'm saying this and I'm prefacing uh, the, this reading before I'm doing it. It's because typically with these passage, passages of scripture, when it's really familiar, uh, you know, for all of you who are like a long-time Christian, uh, you can almost like instantly predict where this sermon is going or you can uh, even, uh, you know, as you're reading it, you can like, you know, in, in, inside your mind, like, you know, you're already at the end and it's very easy for you to disconnect, for you to detach yourself from this passage because it's all so familiar and you think you have like gotten the juice out of it already and it's, it's for the most part old and stale. But my encouragement to you is that, hey, take this opportunity to even connect with the words even as we're about to read it. I found that uh, in, in my life and in the lives of many people that familiarity is often uh, one of the biggest obstacles to breakthrough. Yeah, this familiarity that births this sense of complacency is oftentimes such a big roadblock in, uh, in our spiritual lives and in breakthrough. And so I want to encourage you even as we read this passage together uh, to connect with the words, to think deeply, to let these words sink in. Sounds good? Yeah. All right. I'm reading a verse from uh, 2 Chronicles. Can I have my verse up? Familiar passage. It says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is the word of the Lord. How apt 
What an apt passage of scripture uh, that we're reading today, that God will heal our land. This is something that we are crying out for. This is what we are praying into, that God will heal our land. Well, notice in this verse, I, I'm pretty sure a bunch of you knows the backdrop to this verse, uh, but you know, in this verse, God gives Solomon a, a set of instructions, prerequisites, actions, if you, will, if you will, that leads up to a move to spirit of visitation from God. He says to him, humble, pray, seek, turn. Then I will hear, forgive, and heal. Here it's pretty clear that we have a part to play and there is a part that God plays. We do what's possible and God does the impossible. We obey in the physical and God releases in the spiritual. This posture of seeking, turning, committing oneself to God, setting oneself apart can be summed up in the word consecration. Consecration. Now, how many of you grew up listening and hearing teachings about the word consecration? So, hands up. Great. 20% of you. But okay. Consecration. Now, what is this word consecration? You don't usually use it in everyday life. Like, nobody goes to Starbucks and throws out the word consecration. You know, it's. Think of a real world practical use. But anyway, consecration, it's this almost old timey kind of revival word that you hear growing up. And today, you know, we don't really see it as like a mainstay in most like very hip kind of messages. It's like so old, so stale. But I think it begs to be revisited. There is such depth, there's such uh, joy and fulfillment to be found in this whole concept idea of consecration. Now, consecration is this idea of solemn dedication, making sacred, setting apart through practical commitments as well as refrain. And all through the library of scripture and church history, we see this idea, an act of consecration being a key preceding factor in the move of the spirit. Where there is no consecration, there is no move of the spirit. It's with that I come to a working theory, and this is my sermon title for today, and this is the working theory I would like to expose out for you, and this is it. Receive the Holy Spirit. Consecration leads to visitation. Consecration leads to visitation. Now, we read that verse earlier in 2 Chronicles, and in that verse, you know, it's such a profound, such a loaded verse, but we, we, we read through it, and I don't know whether you notice that there's this utterly mind-blowing, profound, scandalous line that lies in that verse. And I don't want us to get past it too quickly. It says this in the verse that when we seek His face, when we seek the face of God, He hears us. God Himself hears us. And let's just let that sink in for a moment. The God of the universe he who created all things, he who sustains and holds all things together, he hears you when you call. The God who made you, who created you, who fashioned you with such a purpose, he hears you when you call. Just think of a person you greatly love and admire, and just think of that person being so intently invested into your life. That person is always listening out to your conversations. Sounds pretty stalkerish, but just go with it. But he's always listening out, thinking of you, intently uh, uh, invested into your life. A person that you really love and admire. And that feeling that you sense in your heart right now, just multiply it by a billion. The God of the universe, the most important being in all of existence, hears you when you call. That's such a profound statement. And the question that I'd like to lead us to, even as we get going and work through scripture, is this. What did you expect coming into church today? What did you expect coming into church today? And why is this important to answer? Because, you know, it's a really common saying, but your expectation will often dictate your approach. Your expectation will often dictate your approach. Are you with me? Yeah. If you merely expect to come in the morning, hear from a communicator and leave with some notes, then that might just be all you get. Yeah. If you merely come expecting to have a good catch-up with some friends, you know, hear what's been going on in each other's lives, enjoy community, then that might just be all you get. If you merely expect to fulfill a spiritual obligation, you come to church because it's just the right thing to do, get your spiritual cardio in, 30 minutes of worship, one hour, 110 of strength training with Andre, and then spiritual obligation fulfilled, 
my quota is met for the week. If that is your goal, if that is what you come to church expecting to experience and to do, then that might just be all you get. But what if we expected something more? What if we came to church today with an expectation to meet the God of the universe, the God who hears you when you call, the God who is so intently invested in your life? What if we expected to meet him here today? Perhaps you would come more prepared, more settled in your heart, your soul, your mind. Perhaps there are things that you would come here with, you know, ready to engage them with, ready to talk to them about, perhaps you'll, you'll come uh, with a different posture of heart. Taking a step further, what would it look like if we actually expected God to move in power in our lives, in our city, in our community? How would our lives look? How would we structure and posture our lives differently? You know, posture communicates intent, right? This Chinese New Year period, how many of you give unpause, a bunch of you, right? You know, the little kid comes to you, uh, the little kid will come with one of two postures, either gongsi, which is like to, to greet, or like the hand straight away, like, hongbao na lai already, you know, and the kid, I like, take the hongbao, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, you know, the posture communicates intent, right? You know, if, the, if, if a person intends to bless, to greet, the entire body posture is different, right? Posture communicates intent. And so the question I, I have for all of us today, even as we talk about the Spirit of God, we talk about moved spirit, we talk about Him coming in power, how does our lives, the postures that we adopt in our lives, communicate our desire, our need, to, to a large degree, our desperation for the Spirit of God? How will our lives look? Maybe the question is, is you even ask yourself the honest question, like, would my life be okay without the Spirit? Is this like just a value-add thing, a supplementary thing? You know? Or do I see it as like, you know, like, hey, you know, actually for the most part, okay, tie or lie to lie, you know, a case, case Sarah, Sarah kind of thing, whatever will be, will be. And, you know, hey, you know, I'm okay with my life for the most part. I'm pretty fulfilled. Get a good job, you know, live well. Kids are okay. Um, spirit wants to come in power? Sure. No, no objections. Uh, but I'm pretty much fine without spirit. Or is this a reality that you ache for, that you desire, that you so want? to meet Him in such a profound way, to see Him come in power and watch His reality invade ours. This is something that we want, something that we desire. And if it's so, my suggestion to you is that it will, it should, it must translate to a different posture of life. Making sense? Bill Johnson, in talking about life of the Spirit, brings up this moment in Scripture where... uh, the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus and descends upon him like a dove, like a dove, right? And he brings up this point, uh, how would you live your life uh, if you had a dove resting upon your shoulder and you didn't want a dove to fly away? And the point he brings up is this, that if you were to do so, um, every step you take is with the dove in mind, right? You don't want the dove to fly away, you take every step with that dove in mind, constantly checking back, constantly making sure that the dove is still present. Life with the Spirit ought to look like that, where every step we make in life, every decision, every thought, every deed is with the Spirit in mind as we host Him, as a people and as a community. Making sense? Now, um, this whole idea of posturing for a move of spirit, this whole idea of consecration, I think it's a concept, it's an idea that we'll unpack for the rest of our lives. You know, I think that um, this whole idea of like laying down of sacrifice, it ought to be progressive, right? You know, think of sacrifice as a step beyond what's convenient, what is comfortable, right? You take a step in the direction, and uh, often what happens is that yesterday's sacrifice, the sacrifice that you have adopted a year ago becomes really easy, becomes really normative, and so it's no longer a sacrifice, and it requires you to take another step beyond what is comfortable, and it ought to be progressive. And I think this idea of consecration ought to be progressive as well. And we spend the rest of our lives unpacking it, but today, you know, I would uh, end off the sermon with proposing three shifts that I hope our community can adopt as we respond to the leading, the drawing, this like almost tractor beam kind of sense that we get of the Holy Spirit. We feel Him drawing us deeper as a community and 
it's easy for us to adopt the passive, the inactive approach. But as he reveals, it demands a response. And this is what I hope that we can step into as a community. Are you with me? No, but before I get to that, I'm going to spend a bunch of time unpacking the subject of holiness, of holy. Now, I know it it doesn't really fit into like the trajectory we're going, or it seems like we're going to trajectory, but now I'm taking a step back and talking about holiness and about what it means to be holy, this whole subject. Um, but I think it's really odd and strange for us to talk about receiving the Holy Spirit, His presence, His person, His power, and not even talk about the word holy yeah. and holiness. And so I want to spend some time talking about that. And I think what it's going to do is it's going to really frame the three shifts that I'll talk about uh, at the end of the sermon really well, but it's also going to give us this like renewed hunger and thirst for holiness. Are you with me? Now, as we grow in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we have to know one of the primary things He wants to do is to make you and I holy, right? And if we are going to operate in the things of Spirit, prophecy, healing, casting out demons, the like, then obviously we have to grow to become more holy, right? Let's read a passage of Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak, to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, the word for uh, holy is the word Kadash. Everybody say it real quickly, Kadash. Kadash, and uh, you know, Kadash uh, loosely translates to meaning unique. It means uh, not common, not ordinary, not normal, not go with the crowd, the flow not how everyone does it. And so it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, the opposite of holy doesn't necessarily mean it's evil. It really means commonplace, normative, uh, ordinary, right? But kadash can also mean pure and clean as opposed to dirty and unclean. It can also mean good, to be very special unlike the other. Theologians talk about how God is the other with a capital O, meaning he is totally unlike anyone else. He is without parallel to any other being in the universe, and he is the epitome of good. He is holy. So, what does it mean to be holy? To be holy is to be like God. To be like God, to live in alignment with his character. Ancient theologians call this the imatio dei, or the imitation of God. As God's people, we are to mirror and mimic what God is like to the world. God is holy, so we are holy. God is just, so we are just. God is love, so we are love. You get the idea. Now, as we read further in the text, we read this oddly placed phrase all through the chapter. I'm just going to bring out a couple of examples. And it's the phrase, I am the Lord your God. If you read down verse, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make meals for gods, for yourselves, I am the Lord your God. And we see this phrase, this oddly placed phrase, repeated all through the chapter. Now, take a step back. Think about this phrase, right? Uh, what an odd phrase. It's really weird to, to use it in everyday language. Suppose, you know, Amy and I have kids, right? And we, let's give them some hypothetical names, like Luke and Leia. <clears throat> hypothetical names that I would confirm never use. Uh, like Luke and Leia, Go wash your hands. I'm Andre, your father. <laughs> Look and Leia, go and prepare the table. I'm Andre, your father. Look and Leia, go and wash the dishes. I'm Andre, your father. It's a pretty weird use and pretty weird phrase, isn't it? Well, a commentator writes that all through the chapter runs a refrain, I'm the Lord, as if to say, your quality of life must reflect my character. This is what I require of you because this is what reflects me. This is what I myself will do. So, to, so this call of holiness to be holy, to do holy things, to pursue holiness, is really a call and a pursuit to be like God. Now on the flip side, to be unholy is to be unlike God. It is to be unsynced with God's character and heart. God is pure, holy, and clean. We are not. God is just, but we don't care about the poor, the needy. God is merciful and kind, but we are mean, mostly on Facebook, but it's okay because it's all online, and the pastor doesn't really track all that kind of stuff, so we think it's okay. David Wells, a theologian, uh, writes this about holiness. Now, this is really long. This is going to be the longest quote ever read in this church. Are you ready? 
My man, he says this. Whoa. Don't worry, I'll read it for you. You can close your eyes and uh, just embrace my soothing voice. He says this. The loss of traditional vision of God as holy is now manifested everywhere in the evangelical world. It's the key to understanding why sin and grace have become such empty terms. Divorced from the holiness of God, sin is merely self-defeating behavior or breach in etiquette. Divorced from the holiness of God, grace is merely empty rhetoric, pious uh, window dressing for the modern technique by which sinners work out their own salvation. Divorced from the holiness of God, our gospel becomes indistinguishable from any of a host of alternative self-help doctrines. Wow. Divorced from the holiness of God, our worship becomes mere entertainment. The holiness of God is the very cornerstone of Christian faith, for it is the foundation of reality. Sin is defiance of God's holiness. The cross is the outworking and victory of God's holiness. And faith is the recognition of God's holiness. Next slide. It is this God, majestic and holy in his being, this God whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. He has been replaced in many quarters by a God who is slick and slack, whose moral purposes turn out to be avuncular advice that we can disregard or negotiate as we see fit, whose word is a plaything for those who wish merely to listen to themselves, whose church is a mall in which the religious, their pockets filled with the coin of need, do their business. We seek happiness, not righteousness. We want to be fulfilled, not filled. We are interested in satisfaction, not a holy dissatisfaction with all that is wrong. Thank you for the encouragement, David. Um, now, I know that was really heavy and weighty to read. Um, but I think it's a good kind of heavy. It's a good kind of weighty. You know why? Because what David was getting to is that when we sin, we sin against God. Our sin is a direct assault on God's holiness, on who he fundamentally is. And it isn't because God is mean or on your case or really uptight, but it's because he is holy, pure and clean. And when anything is unholy, unclean, unpure gets around him, it is a direct offense and assault on who he is. Not only is it a direct offense to God, but also to ourselves. We were made to be like God. We were made to pursue holiness, to be holy, to join him in his work of redemption. When we entertain something that is unholy, we violate and we do violence against who we fundamentally are. As an old saying goes, a bunch of old sayings today, sin isn't wrong because it's off limits. It's off limits because it is wrong for you. It's like when I tell Luke and Leia to not run across the road, you know, Hypothetical kids again. Look at Leia, don't run, against, run, run across the road. It's not because I'm uptight, mean, and on their case, but because you know, these hypothetical kids, they lack the intelligence, they lack the wisdom, they lack the insight of knowing the difference between right and wrong, safe and unsafe. And so as a parent, as a loving parent that I am, I need to enforce my will to protect them. And that's God's passionate zeal displayed for you because the opposite of love isn't so much hate, it's indifference. It's when God doesn't care. That's when we ought to be concerned. Love often manifests itself and is proven by the hatred of the things that will hinder, destroy that love. And God's zeal is demonstrated in His heart, will, intent for your lives. Now, I'd like to address a common misconception with the concept of holiness. Are you still with me? This is yes. All right. And is that holiness is all in the negative. It's purely about what you don't do, things you avoid, refrain, or stand against. In reality, there are two facets to holiness. Holiness is both to be set apart from what the Bible describes as the world. Now, this is not planet Earth. We're not supposed to evacuate the world and go to somewhere else. It's not talking about planet Earth, but it's the bits and pieces of our culture that are at odds or in open rebellion to Jesus, his way, and his kingdom. And to be holy is to stand apart from these things, to not participate in open rebellion. That's right, but that's only half the picture. To be holy is also to be set apart for God. And this is where we get the idea of consecration, is to dedicate a time, a place, a thing, a body, or a community to God as an act of worship. That's why in scripture you have holy places, right? 
Think of Moses, the burning bush, a voice comes forth and says, hey, this is holy ground. Take off the sandals. This is a holy ground. This is a holy place. Now, take a step back. How can the ground be holy? What makes the ground holy? As far as I know it, sand and soil are morally neutral things. It's not as though the sand goes, I'm standing against sin, I'm consecrating myself as a sand, and now I'm a holy place, right? It doesn't work that way, right? Now, then how does the sand, the ground, become holy? It is holy because God is there, and God has set it apart for himself. That's what makes the ground holy. It is holy because God is there. And so we read later in Leviticus, we read of cooking utensils, pots and pans being holy. Now, how can a spatula be holy? Is there a spatula from heaven and a spatula from hell? It just does its own thing. It's like, ah, evil spatula, spawn of Satan. Well, in the world of Leviticus, if something is set apart for God, for the temple, for the place of worship, then that ordinary, normal, non-moral object can even become holy. Holiness is in the negative, but it is also in the positive. It is about what we don't do, but it's also about what we do. It's about how we are set apart from the world, but it's also about how we are set apart for God. Making sense? Wrapping up this talk on holiness shortly as we come to a landing in 15 minutes. Now we're going to flip back a few chapters early on in Leviticus. We're going to read uh, from Leviticus chapter 9. And we read about uh, Aaron all through this chapter about him sacrificing animals in God's presence. Now this chapter is really detailed, gory. He's like flicking around breast meat. And so if you're a vegan, vegetarian, really love animals, this is a chapter that you kind of want to like, you know, stay clear off, but I encourage you to read it and eat meat. Now, uh, it's pretty gory stuff in there. Uh, and we read, uh, after they were done in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23, 24, it says this, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Jump over to chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized, or in some translations, profane fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I'll be proved holy in the sight of all people. I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Now, I'm getting to something really key and crucial here. Uh, Aaron's sons, or as we read in this passage, did something against the laws and fire came out and consumed them and they died. They died. It's a really heavy story, right? And we must understand in that day, the tabernacle of God was the locus point of his presence on the earth. If you wanted to experience and meet with God, you would go to the tabernacle and you would experience his presence. Now, in the Old Testament, if you were to get too close to the presence of God and you are not holy, meaning you are impure, unclean, sinful, unprepared, violating holiness, laws, you would die. And that was what happened to the sons of Aaron. But if we read the entire story of Scripture, not just this one verse, but you read the entire story of Scripture, we know that God doesn't want that. We know that that's not what God is after. We know that the story of Scripture tells us that God wants to be with His people. So in Leviticus, He starts giving the children of Israel all these rules, steps to take, things to do, things to not do, which is what we read in Leviticus chapter 19 earlier and what we're about to read in chapter 16. Let's read this. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And it goes on and on the rest of the chapter. Now, sorry for all the long passages and the long monologue, but here's my point, and this is what I'm building up to. The point of holiness was not to appease God's anger as much as it was to experience God's presence. 
the point of holiness, the point of adhering to the laws, the rules, the steps to take in the Old Testament, it's not so much as a means to appease God's anger as it was a pathway to experience God's presence. The point of every law, every commitment, every refrain was to create a pathway for God's people to be with him once again. Holiness isn't just being about isn't just about being set apart from stuff. It's part of it. But the greater vision here is for us to be set apart for God, to be with Him, to join with His intent and His desire that is consistent all through the story of Scripture that God wants to be with His people. That is why we pursue holiness, not as a means to appease God's anger, as a way to experience His. Presence. Now, this would dramatically change the way you read Leviticus, right? Leviticus is one of the most grace-filled books of the Bible. The entire point of the Old Testament was to make a way for God to be with his people. But those very things, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, are massive signposts that points to Jesus of Nazareth, who came in the first century, not just as the king of Israel, but as God in the flesh. And while Levitical laws are no longer relevant in this day and age, you don't have to carry a bull and a ram to church to sacrifice. Imagine how awkward the grab hitch would be if you actually had to do that. But while Levitical laws are no longer relevant, the pursuit of holiness is still very much relevant today. One of the things that really aches my heart whenever I hear it is this whole rhetoric that, hey, in the Old Testament, they had to do a bunch of stuff, but in the New Testament, everything's been done for you. Yes and no. The things that you couldn't accomplish by your own moral standards was done and purchased for you, but it does not excuse you from work. You ought to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Such an ambiguous line, right? See the Lord. I think it's ambiguous on purpose. You know, in my mind, it means you will not experience God in ways that all of us crave and desire and want. It means you will not sense the nearness and closeness of God, the Holy Spirit working in you and working through you unless you are holy. Now hear me in saying this. This is not because God is withholding himself from you, but because by your actions, your decisions, your indecisions in life, you have on purpose set apart yourself from God. And to be holy is to set yourself apart for God and to experience Him. Remember, the whole point of holiness is to see the Lord, to experience His presence and intimacy with the Spirit. So I want to come back to where we started off earlier. Consecration leads to visitation. Consecration, this idea of solemn dedication, making sacred, setting apart through practical commitments and refrain. This is what leads to visitation. This is what leads to visitation. And we are responding to God's desire that's been consistent through Scripture, that He wants to be with His people. And through our actions, through these practical commitments, changes that we long to uh, adhere and, and live out in our lives, we are saying yes to the work of the Spirit. This is the context to which I'm bringing you to you the three shifts that I hope we can step into as a committee. The first shift is to move from conviction to confession. To move from conviction to confession. I've heard it said that the hallmark of a believer who is walking the Spirit is the conviction of sin. And we're all too familiar with the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's in our vision statement, this whole idea of on earth as it is heaven. But we read down further down the prayer. Uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Notice this, that on the same plane as our need for physical food, Jesus places our need for forgiveness. Which says to us that when we deny ourselves forgiveness of our sins or wrongdoings, it is to starve and wage violence on our soul. The Bible gives us a pretty clear picture on how to walk in freedom. It is to be convicted of sin and experience forgiveness through the practice of confession. Now, this idea of confession, in my opinion, has been very much lost in the modern church. The Catholics have uh, confession booths. And, uh, you know, I read an article recently. It says that uh, 
most confessions typically happen during Easter and Christmas. Uh, most people only go twice a year. Uh, and before we laugh and, and think lightly of that, consider how we do confession in our Pentecostal charismatic traditions. Most of the time, confessions looks like I feel convicted of a bad thing. In my head, I'm like, I'm sorry, God. In my head. And then I move past it really, really quickly. That's how we repent. That's how we practice confession. And then let's take a step back and think about your lives. And I also think about my life. You know, in moments like this, you know, I, I really wonder, hey, hey, did I truly repent? Did I truly feel sorrow for my sin? Was I really forgiven? And then to see the same dysfunction, the same cycle repeat itself again. I wonder, did I really confess? Did I really repent? And there is a way to repent well. And scripture gives us instruction. It's to confess your sins to one another. We live in the age of individualism where we are taught through culture to be self-reliant and independent, to need others equals weakness. But Jesus, his way subverts the cultural mantra of our day. You need people. You can't do life alone. Here are some verses in confession. Still with me? First John, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28 says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. James 5 says this, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You know, I was just at a life group really recently and I was just sharing with them like this whole vision of community. What are the kinds of communities do we want to, that we want to see in the church? And, we, and I, I shared with them like five uh, traits and values of, of a, a biblical community and I talked about how we need celebration, how we, these places need to be places where we celebrate life in God's kingdom, the goodness of God. It needs to be a place of hospitality where we welcome the stranger. It's a place of generosity where we meet needs, where we give uh, with a heart of love. But it's also a place where we bear each other's burdens, where we hear the struggles, the needs, the pains of uh, our brothers and our sisters and we stand with them in solidarity in the place of prayer. We bear each other's burdens. But a missing element in biblical communities is this element of the confession of sin. We need the confession of sin in order to fully live out the biblical vision of community. Confession is as simple as admitting to the condition of your soul. And something will be, uh, and I'll roll up a few things that we will do to help us step into a greater vision of being a biblical community. And so this year, you know, we are looking at a couple of things. Uh, down the slide. Yeah. We'll be doing a series uh, in the month of March called Life Together where we'll begin to work on what it means to uh, be a biblical community in our day and age where you know, life is it's so busy, where we are taught to be uh, individualistic in our approach to life. It is a time for the church to be a shining example in an age of individualism. May we be a people that model what community looks like. But it's also uh, something that we are coming out as a staff as well. Uh, having a directory of Christian counselors. Um, as a staff, we understand our limitation. And as a pastoral team, we, we know that there's only so much we can do in the work unto freedom and there needs to be at sometimes a professional help or a neutral party. And so one of the things that we want to make available for you this year is a directory of Christian counselors where you can confess, where you can share openly and walk in freedom. It's our plan to move from conviction to confession. The next uh, shift I'd like to propose is for us to move from Distraction to preoccupation. We live in what researchers and sociologists call an attention economy. Uh, attention is a resource and humans only have so much of it. That's the working theory. Uh, the CEO of Microsoft once said that we are moving from a world where computing power was scarce to a place where it's now almost limitless, where the true scarce community commodity is, an increase, is increasingly human attention. Today, in our day and age, we find it tough to be present with people, present in the moments, but most of all, present with God. And now this sense of disconnection also bleeds into our faith. Churches, well-meaningly, try to compensate for that 
by having attractive, well-thought-out events, programs, and new ways of teaching the Bible just to fight for your attention. Amidst the onslaught of digital marketing that you are exposed to on a daily basis, while effective for the most part, there's only just for two hours tops. That leads to Christians today being thoroughly entertained but spiritually malnourished, lacking any internal debt and living mostly untransformed, unfulfilled lives. A.W. Tozer said this in his book, Pursuit of God, the church that cannot worship must be entertained. Worship at its root is simply paying attention to God. Now, when we talk about worship, we typically swing the pendulum on one or the other. One is a kind of like, Four songs kind of thing that you sing, that you do either at the start of sermon or the end of sermon. It's kind of like a warm-up and cool-down thing. Or we swing the pendulum to the other extreme, which is your entire life is a worship service. All you do is worship from working, from drinking coffee. Everything is worship. Well, one feels, um, no, both true, but one feels reductionary, limiting worship to four songs. But one feels generic, vague almost, and almost empty of meaning, Right? But I think there's a middle that we can exist in between those polar extremes. What worship is, is for our entire being, our heart, our soul, our mind, to be consistently captivated by the awe and wonder of who God is. That is abiding in the vine. That is the practice of the presence. That is praying without ceasing. Now, all of that sounds well and good. But honestly, for many of us, it sounds downright unattainable because we're simply too busy and distracted. But this year, we can all start somewhere. It's as simple as fighting for real estate in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. There are things in life that seek to preoccupy and distract us. And this year is a year to intentionally fight for space, your thought life, your heart, in your soul. Let me just say this. God doesn't have Tinkerbell syndrome. You know Tinkerbell? Tinkerbell, you have to believe in Tinkerbell or else Tinkerbell will die. God doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need for you to believe in Him in order for Him to be sustained. He doesn't need to be reminded that He's holy, His majesty, His worthy. He doesn't need that. So why do we sing? Why do we worship? Because it is us who need it. We need to be reminded. We need to be captivated by the awe and wonder of who God is. Because it's so easy for us to lose sight of God in the midst of our culture, our circumstance, and complacency. Now this year, uh, we have a few initiatives to move us from a place of distraction into preoccupation. I have that up on the slide. Uh, one of the things we'll be doing in midweek is we'll be doing a Bible course. Uh, Janice will be teaching a Bible course, teaching you how to engage with the Bible, going through some tools for you to better engage with the Word of God. Uh, one of the things that I have made as a pattern in my life is I would always start the day with a passage of scripture and just chew on it repeatedly all through the day. And this is the way I keep my mind on the things of God. Think of it like chewing gum, legal spiritual chewing gum, and you chew on it, you think and you meditate on the things of God. We're going through a book of the Bible uh, this year uh, as our goal to increase biblical literacy. And we are exploring Bring Back Worship and Prayer Nights uh, where we can set time aside few hours where we come together, where we sing, pray, and listen to the Spirit and watch what He does. All right? The last one, even as I come to a close, is for us to move from observation to response. From observation to response. Let me say it. Christianity is not a spectator sport. The biblical vision for your life is not that we'll live in comfort or exhaustion, but we will follow Jesus' direction in pouring out our lives for what really matters. Between boredom and burnout, drifting and drive, apathy and ambition, it's the beautiful sacred place and pace of living by the Spirit. And my goal for all of us as a community is that we will respond to the invitations of the Spirit. It may be an invitation to join Him in His work or an invitation to experience Him in a way previously not known. Uh, a word on first. Mark Sayers, he says this. Now this is another long quote, but I'm sure it'll be really special. Uh, Mark Sayers, have that quote. He says this, the elephant in the room, living room of contemporary Christianity is people's ability to simply sit in church, to consume the experience the way one would a great sporting event, a thrilling movie, or exciting theme park ride and to dispose of it, totally unchanged at the soul level. As they leave the sanctuary, sure they might feel challenged and courage or even move, but a horizontal self simply feels the experience and moves on. 
Don't get me wrong, this can happen anywhere in traditional churches, emerging churches, and contemporary churches. And he goes on and says this, worship service becomes a pseudo-media event, church building becomes a theme park, Christian leaders become Christian celebrities, teaching becomes entertainment, salvation becomes self-help, discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement, and the gospel becomes a slogan. May we lean in to the work of the Spirit and His invitation to partner with Him. Next, responding to the invitation of the Spirit to experience Him in unfamiliar ways. Now, here's where we're at as a church. Last year, you know, we spent the whole year diving into this idea of practice where we revisited some spiritual disciplines, some ancient, some modern, in our bid to practice the way of Jesus in our city, in our lives, to live lives of discipleship. We talk a lot about implementing our practical tools uh, to better our lives, you know, if you will, to unto the goal of transformation. We talk a lot about that and we focused a whole bunch of that. And last year's teachings uh, were more, uh, if, if I have a language, more contemplative in nature. We didn't do a whole bunch of altar calls. A lot of it were moments where we sat uh, in quiet, in silence, just listening to spirit and hearing him speak and uh, point out areas in our lives. And, you know, this year, uh, the start of the year with what I've been experiencing, especially in the first two weeks, it feels like the trajectory of the church is really different. And some of you joined us around that time when we were talking about spiritual practices. And this uh, experience that we've been going through for the last couple of weeks seems new. It seems foreign. It seems like this church pian liao. It's like, wow, how come so different? How come so weird? How come... How come worship so long? And you're asking all these questions. These are very valid questions. And now, you know, typically when you go to a church or if you view it as like, okay, you know, uh, I need the church to, uh, you know, expose these are all the things I, I believe. And I think that's a valid place for that. Um, typically people will go like, are you more of a word church or are you more of a spirit church? Word meaning, you know, the extreme would be like you do expository only, you do you only teach true verses and you do a lot of Bible series and the spirit church, the extreme is like, woo, we are all on the ground and you know, no chairs. Uh, that's the way I put it. And you know, there, there seems to be almost this like a false dichotomy of like a contemplative traditions and charismatic traditions. And I think there are churches who identify as more contemplative churches and more charismatic uh, church, you know, and for the most part, you know, we, it almost feels like we're dabbling in both and I think, you know, it, it does us right to even um, uh, shed light on where we're at as a church. And so this is where we're at, church, the city. Now, uh, like I said, you know, we, we, we have entertained contemplative traditions uh, last year. And this year, you know, it seems that we're leaning more charismatic. And uh, to even help you get a better understanding of what these uh, traditions generally represent, let me have the next slide up. Um, next slide. Contemplative, you know, there's more of a value for, like, the inward, introspective, Charismatic churches are more expressive. Contemplatives like kind of have a high value for peace. The charismatic like passion, exuberance, daily disciplines, practices that's supposed to break through moments and altar calls. Uh, it's more study-based and intellectual. The other being more experience-based and emotional. Contemplatives are more quiet and individualistic. Charismatic churches like crowds and it's more communal in its worship style. Now, if you're asking me a question like where are we on this spectrum? You know, what are we doing? My answer is both. We are both. We are both. Now, these two pursuits, though they seem opposed, though they seem very different, they do dovetail on a common goal, and that goal is encounters with God. They do dovetail that. Now, if I can be honest with you, last year I was pretty burned out by the more charismatic expressions of the church. I, I lean in more into study. I I, I really lean into the more intellectual aspect of Christianity, of the gospel, and uh, really found life and hope and healing uh, in study. But this year, you know, I really feel for church and even for my own life, you know, a real drawing, a real leaning to even more of the charismatic expressions of uh, church life. And what I want to say to us today is that you know, I, I don't believe in finding a middle ground in between those two. I think a lot of pastors are very obsessed with finding a middle ground, an expression that caters all people. But I want to encourage us as a community, like, hey, don't think about middle. Think about lifting yourselves to the wind of the Spirit. 
where the spirit blows, that's where we'll go. If it's emphasizing study, intellectuals, uh, if it's emphasizing peace and quiet and contemplation, that's where we'll go. And if it's emphasizing real moves of spirit that looks like power and passion, exuberance, that's where we go. We lean into where he is blowing. That is what we long to do as church. Now, a uh, couple of initiatives we have for the year, even as we close this message, for, to take us from a point of observation to response. Uh, I've mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, we'll be doing a few mission trips. Uh, we will have a series on work. And, uh, you know, I want to bring this up. Um, from this week onwards, every Sunday, we will be giving a salvation call at the end of service. Now, this is uh, to say, you know, we don't believe salvation or like seeing people saved ought to be restricted to an event, like, you know, we have evangelistic day out, but it is through our interactions with people, through hospitality, through us witnessing to each other, you know, in, in, in our daily life that we'll see people come to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so we want to communicate a value for that. And so every Sunday we will be giving salvation calls. And I will also be doing altar calls. Now, altar calls, you know, some of you grew up in this tradition, others didn't. But in many ways, it is uh, what I believe a way of responding to God. You know, I think we can respond to God in our seats. But there's something about physical obedience that brings about spiritual release. And so this is a, a value that we want to communicate. Like we have a real value for altar calls and we believe that in there is power and change. And so we're going to do that. The last one is we are going to mobilize the church and we're going to call all of us to participate in a three-day corporate fast. Now this is going to happen two weeks from now. We'll have more material and notes on it. But a fast is not a means to appease or means to twist God's arm to moving. But it's our way of saying yes to his work. It's our way of responding to his invitation, to his move. And so stay tuned for that. That's what we're going to do as a church. Are you with me?